and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandorf, the I, and I think you're interesting. If you follow TV at all, you know there are a lot of shows about rich white people in Los Angeles who have emotional problems that are billed as comedies. And uh, one of the frequent (laughs) points of contention I hear from people who read my work is that these shows are not comedies, they're dramas. But I think that they they exist in a really interesting space between the two forms where they are talking about sort of these emotional issues that TV hasn't always been great at discussing, uh, but in ways that are approachable and and interesting and and, and often funny. Uh, One of my favorites in that genre is Hulu's Casual, and uh, I love it for a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is is its its star, Kayla Watkins, who plays the character Valerie, who is a a therapist who uh, isn't as self-aware as I think that she sometimes thinks she is. Watkins has been one of my favorite comedic actresses for a long time, but her role in Casual has really brought out this this side of her that I, I've been so impressed by. And I, we're three seasons in and every every week she seems to find new shades to the character. So I was really thrilled to have her in the studio to talk with her both about this show and, and some of her other roles as well as what it is to be an actor, which is something I'm always interested in hearing about. So uh, I, I'm excited for you to hear it too. Michaela Watkins, how are you today? I'm very good. Thank good, you. Good, good. Very well. Uh, so you're on Hulu's Casual. Yes. Uh, which, for those of our listeners who haven't seen it, is uh, you, you play a therapist on the show. Um, I was watching some of the most recent episodes last night, and this is going to be interesting for our casual fans because when this is released, I will have not seen what you've seen. So I'm, I'm behind you in the future. Um, but I was watching some of the episodes last night, and the characters on this show, all of them make some of the worst choices. Like they make bad choices consistently. And as someone who's a writer, I understand why that's interesting to write. But as an actor, why is it fun to play someone who's doing the wrong thing so often? It's not always fun (laughs) to play somebody who's making bad choices. (laughs) But what is fun is figuring out why they make the bad choices. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've made bad choices. (laughs) Hindsight's always 20-20. But I think there's a a lapse of, not of common sense, but of uh, impulse control. Mm -hmm. And then simultaneously a feeling of something really pushing them towards a different kind of an an energy. And whether that means changing the one that they're in, and this is the only way they know how to do that, or if it's um, just simply experimenting. For my character, she's somebody who... As you, I can't wait for you to see the rest of the season. But um, we know that she married somebody when she was 20, 21 and had a baby. Yeah. She never had her 20s. She never got to be, can I swear? Yeah, you can You can say whatever you want. Yeah. She never got to be a naughty girl. No, she, she never got to be a fuck up. <laughs> yeah. And um, now she's fucking up. Mm. And it's just, that's what's happening. Um, I think... A lot of a lot of people sort of come into the world and they know I have friends who married just the right person in their twenties and they had kids and they picked their career and it all made sense and they have no regrets and they did it all right and they just knew. Right. And I'm one of those people that had to sort of fall down and hit every single stair and go, oh, 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 fire's hot. You know, <laughs> I had to touch it. I didn't just go, no, I I figured it was hot. Right. Uh, and I think sometimes our characters are that way. They just have to, they have to do it to know that it's not the right choice. So much of 
acting is is internalizing this stuff. Have you like when when Valerie makes a, a poor choice or when she does something that maybe even you disagree with? Do you live with that? Is that something that that you keep with you, or at the end of the day, are you like, "Well, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore"? Yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do as an actress. I do draw on any kind of personal experience and to, to sort of get in her headspace as much as I possibly can. I, I have conversations with the creators, Andrew Lehman, and you know who's ever directing and the writers. Certainly, if I feel like this does this, this is a disconnect from everything I understand about this person, mm-hmm. this is not something that I feel like I know how to do. I think there was something where um, it was very, very visceral sort of turn where um, she has sex. Valerie had sex with the Chase Crawford character. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember him, but yeah, yeah. the guy from Storytelling Class. And in the script, he had sort of this exchange with Laura on his way leaving after they have this crazy sex. And I, I just felt like you can say whatever you want about her parenting. I just don't understand why that's child abuse at that point. You bring home a guy and have really loud sex while your you know, 17-year-old daughter is sitting there in the living room. Right. It, it made that, that, that is something that I just bumped, kept bumping on because in no scenario did I feel like my character would sign off on that. Right. And so what I had to understand was my character was going through something where that was not her primary focus anymore and that perhaps she's becoming the worst version of herself in her mind, which is she's becoming her mother, which is this is the environment that she grew up in. Right. And that by, you know, the one thing you try to avoid the most— becoming your parents right. is the thing like the more you try to avoid it the more it becomes your eight are you hiring do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click and then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job and it's better than anyone else that's why ZipRecruiter is different unlike other job sites ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you it finds them in fact over 80 percent of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours no juggling emails no calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. This is a show about people who sort of feign Mm self-awareness, let's say, but ultimately aren't as self-aware as they seem. And Mm -hmm. that irony is particularly developed in Valerie, who's a therapist, who's ostensibly very self-aware about her own emotions, her own psychology. But we sort of constantly see where she bumps up against her lack of self-awareness. Where do you think she knows the least about herself and is like the least knowledgeable about who she is? I love these questions so much. I think they're they're so astute and I think they're really interesting and I always want to unpack this in anything else almost except it's a little hard. I'm, I'm being totally honest no, with fine. you. It's a little hard to do it in Valerie only because I don't think that she knows she's not self-aware and I'm so up in her 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, I I have to sign off on whatever she's doing. You know, I mean, I have to um, sort of go. For example, from your perspective, she's right. she's not self aware. From right. my perspective, she's searching desperately to figure out who the fuck she is. Right. And right. so she spent her 20 years being self-aware. I, I, this is a character that doesn't say... My brother, Alex, he says everything. Right. Any thought that comes into his head goes out his mouth. Mm-hmm. Valerie holds everything. I mean, if she... I'm surprised that, like, there's not an episode where she's just bleeding out her ass because she has <laughs> ulcers. I just feel like everything is just so contained and so, like... The acting on this show for me is never on the line. It's always what's happening between the lines. There's always the thing that I feel like I want to say and I can't. Right. And that there's like a pillow over my mouth and instead I have to be a corrective and say something else. And so every time I feel like she says something very blunt or very, you know, it's either a leak, like it just, that's just who she is leaking out, uh, or it's a very brave thing for her to just stand up to somebody and assert herself in that way. Because for 20 years, it was about her family, her husband, who wasn't really in love with her, probably, mm-hmm. and her daughter, and and subverting all of her things to just sort of live that story. Right. You mentioned that that the experience for you being in it is different mm-hmm. uh, for the from the experience for me watching it. Mm-hmm. Do you have that experience when you've been in something? Do you have a point where you can just watch it and say, oh, I see this character now as totally outside myself? I watch this character and I just, I'm like, Ugh. people say, would you be friends with Valerie? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't like playing somebody who I feel like is, is this, I mean, she's very complex. Yeah. I think I really like her. I like her mind. I like her wit. Mm-hmm. I like I like a lot of those things. I just um she's just a little um chilly for me, you mm-hmm. know. And I think especially in season 3 when she's just sort of pushing her her boundaries and her limits, I think it's a little unsettling for people because it just she seems a little unhinged, <laughs> you know. So mm-hmm. I I I know for me like if somebody feels unhinged, I get nervous around them. I think Valerie would make me nervous. Mm. Do I feel this way about other characters that I've played? No, Mm because other characters I've played have never been this Mm. interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they've been, they've been like part of a story and, and they're, and when you're, you know, on the peripheral of, of a main storyline, you know what you're servicing, you know what you're doing. And so I, I get it. Like I, I, my characters are always crystal clear. Valerie is just consistently unfolding to me in the way that life is sort of a mystery. And like, every time I leave my house, I come home and I say to my husband, like, why did I say that stupid thing? I mean, I, I I'm like should know better. I'm in my forties. Like, well, why do I talk like an idiot sometimes, you know? <laughs> and yeah, you, I don't know if you ever have a handle on it. And that's how I feel like Valerie is. I just, I just feel like she's petrified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, Watch your own work. Do you, I know some actors never watch. Some actors say they watch it once and then they never return to mm-hmm. it. Do you watch your own work? And if and if so, do you like return to stuff from earlier in your career and look at it and say, uh, "What was I doing there?" You know. <laughs> I think when I first my career first started and I had like any opportunity to be on camera, I would watch it and like sort of investigate it. Like, mm-hmm. a, you know, I would I would it would I would CSI my work, you know, a little bit. But um, now. I can barely watch casual. Um, mm-hmm. 
I love the show. It's a totally a show I watch, by the way. It's, this is like, this show is right up my alley. I mean, mm-hmm. I just love that it's sort of this hybrid of, of comedic and, you know, dramatic, but it's got such char- great character dissection. I love interpersonal relationships. That's just my, that's just my sweet spot. I, that's the stuff I like. I love to invest in, you know, if I'm going to watch a show. And this show has a ton of that. I have a hard time watching it. Um, I don't like watching myself have fake sex on TV. I don't like watching how uncomfortable my character is. It make, it reminds me of how uncomfortable I was when I shot it. And mm-hmm. it reminds me of being uncomfortable in my life. And it's a little cringy. And um, if it was anybody else, I'd be super into it <laughs> because it's me. <laughs> I find it really... Um, I'm just like, blah. But, uh, yeah, mm. I guess that's how I feel about that. But um, but there's other things, you know, I guess. Trophy Wife, for example, was a series where I played such a, a like a ditzy, you know, sort of dizzying kind of gal. And I I had so much fun doing that. Mm-hmm. And I remember I would wa- if I watched an episode, I'd be so surprised at what they used and be just like, oh, it was like a little dazzling, like, oh, that's, ha, I see. Okay, that's funny. You know, I see why they didn't use that other thing or whatever. Right. You know, it was just fun to sort of take a, take a, like a postmortem look at it. But casual, I find for Valerie, I just find it utterly uncomfortable. Right, right. Well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here on the timeline. I think you went from Trophy Wife to Casual. Like there, it was pretty. It was pretty close to each other at the very least. Um, n- no, no. I think in between Trophy Wife and Casual, I had created a show. I, I worked right. on a series that I didn't act in, but it was called Benched. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I. Started doing just a bunch of other stuff, but I guess in terms of like yes, in terms of a series regular, those were those were the yeah yeah sure. those were the successions. Uh, well, it, that's really a a whiplash effect. Um, those two characters could not be more different, um, and I realize that that is the job. But yeah. for you, when you're preparing a character, like like where do you start? How do you when you're doing two things that are so different? Like like did you start differently for each character, or was it kind of the same process for both? It's the same process in the sense that. I had an instinct for both of them, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know what, where I got it from. I, I, you know, I think that's just sort of the awesome magic of of acting and creating anything, where you just don't know where the inspiration comes from, but you just go, uh-huh, yeah, mm. I get it. Yeah. In Trophy Wife for Wife Number Two, Jackie. Oh, Jackie. <laughs> um, I definitely just saw the writing on the page. Right. And I, first of all, the title, I was like, oh, what's this going to be? But then when I read the script, I was like, oh no, it's very witty, very funny. Was was that I just got the rhythm, you know? You yeah. just go, okay, I, I, I don't know if they're going to hire me, but this is what I'm bringing because this is, if I did do this character, this is the, this is the area where I'd want to live in it. And, um, and, and it, and it, and it just was right. You know right. what I mean? They just, they felt it. I felt it. It was just like that, that, that's what it is. With casual, I only in that year in between Trophy Wife and and Casual did I get to sort of do more of that flavor. You know, right. I did much more indie films. I did um, so I wasn't doing just straight up broad comedy and, right. and whatnot. And so uh, enlightened and things like that that just had a, that tone, and I loved it. I mean, that just felt like oh, acting. You know, right. and so. When I got casual, I mean, when I looked at the script of casual, I just felt like, oh, I I feel very instantly connected to this person. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I don't 
have really much in common with her at all, other than um, anytime a person is just trying. Yeah. <laughs> trying. I was like, oh, I understand trying. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I I went in and I read for Jason and uh, Reitman, and he was like, I was the first person to read, actually, the, mm. the part, and, and they hadn't heard it out loud before. So he, he had said, like, oh, that's, like, that's, Jason is somebody, I think, who hears uh, music in his head for every character. And um, for my character, he just heard it like like a jazz. Like, sure. it's, you know, it's not a consistent beat. Mm-hmm. Alex, my brother, he was like, that's the percussive part. That's like, da 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 You always know where you are with him. Right. But Valerie's kind of all over the place. Sure. And, sure. Um, and he, I like to play things extremely subtle because... I feel like, I don't know why, like I said, for this character, right? that's what just sort of, it, it spoke to me in that way that I felt that it lived there. Mm-hmm. And that was exactly what, what he, that's his, that's even his aesthetic, I think. Right, right. You mentioned that uh, you had an instinct for these characters that you carried into the audition. Um, and I, when I see you work a lot of the time, I feel like that you just have a very sort of natural core that then you build out from. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. Um but I'm wondering if you've had a time when you've gone into an audition with a real instinct for a character and it's just mm-hmm. been, like, drastically wrong. Like, they've been like, no, no thanks. Well, I'm sure. I mean, that <laughs> has to happen constantly. And, of course, I probably never hear from those those folks again. Right. But um, I do wish—this is just a general wish. Uh, I, I feel like so many times, you know, actors say, like, I went in there with this, mm-hmm. and, then, and then I didn't get it, and then they told, you know— Whatever my agent's like, oh, we were just looking for this. And it's like, I could have done that. Why yeah. didn't you just say that in the thing? So I'm sure that happens. But but great casting directors will do that. You know, right. they'll be like, oh, that's a fun one. Wrong. But why don't you try this way? Yeah. And then you do. And they go, yeah, that's it. And it's like, thank you for taking the two and a half seconds yeah. extra since I drove an hour here to explain that. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I think it just adjusts a lot of times you don't get the whole script. So yeah. you're really just going off the clues that you have and the clues could be batshit wrong. So, um, you know, we're just doing the best we can. If any, t- you only win by giving more, you know, right information. So, right. What are, like, what are your audition prep tactics? What are your, do you have rituals? Do you have things? I always find this, I, I like to ask actors this because everybody does it weirdly differently. Yeah. Um, my audition ritual. Let's see. I, I'll, I could walk you through like getting in the audition. Let's do it. So uh, I guess I get a notice for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I get so excited that anybody remembered <laughs> to bring me in. Um, and then um, I just so funny. I just <laughs> tweeted this the other day where I just said, one thing I've learned in my career is if you're asked to consider the role of, I think I said like, Donna, Marnie, or Noreen, you're definitely not the lead. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. So usually I look at the role and it's for like Ruth or Marcy. And and then I look down and I, I see like... Kind of the the high points. What right. what is the script? Is it a you know? How, is it TV? Is it a guest star? Is it a um, recur? Is it a movie? Right. And then uh, anyway, so that that gauges my excitement level. You know, oh, so like when when I saw Jason Reitman, for example, on the Casual thing, I was instantly <laughs> like, I don't care what it is, I'm in. I'm I'm clear the books. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to only work on this. 
Um, but the truth is, working on something is such a, a broad definition for me. And I and what I used to do is I used to think if I obsess heavily about it, that was a gauge for how much I wanted it and how much I was quote unquote working on it, right. and therefore the the return would be getting it, and those are equal. So I put this much out there, which means I will get that much back. But that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would cold read things and get the part. And sometimes I would work like crazy on something and not get it. So what I've learned is I have to just completely clear my head, read it for a sense, just to hear like what it is, like just what is this? Is this funny? Is it serious? Is this, you know... Is this a period piece? I don't know. So, uh, and then while I'm reading it, I don't know this, but I'm I'm subconsciously clocking that character and thinking if I were watching it, what what's their what are they doing? Right. Like, mm-hmm. what why why did somebody write that part? You know, because they so that helps me if I think oh this person is an alarmist or whatever I, I get clues about them. You know, right. mm-hmm. and I and it's a very subconscious. So I just read it and I'm just thinking like kind of just ask the question like, oh, why, why, why them? Why, yeah. you know? And then I start to see the writer's need. The, mm-hmm. the writer has a need for this person because blank or blank. So I need to fulfill that need. Right. Um, and then that's a separate thought from once I step into the character and I go, okay, I read it for sense. Now I'm going to put on that person's bodysuit and sure. look out their eyes. Uh, I'm no longer thinking about what the writer's needs are, but I have that as my baseline. Sure. So then I start to um, put together the clues just by what they're saying about what they want and how they feel about everything. And right. um, and the truth is, I used to be able to cold read really well. I used to be able to have this great um, sort of talent of I could pick a line off the page because I would be so invested in what they wanted that what I was saying almost didn't matter. And energetically, I knew where I was going. Yeah. And then I could just pop down the page and be like, oh, there's the line. And that's yeah. what I'll say. But but I know what I want because that's how we are. I mean, we always walk around wanting things and the words that come out are kind of secondary a little bit. Yeah. But because uh, when I turned 40, I lost my close-up vision uh, mm. really badly. And it happened very quickly. It happened sure. like over a course of months. And I can't see uh, on a page anymore. Uh, even with glasses, I have trouble... Um, Picking, picking out things. Right. So unfortunately, what happened is I've had to memorize to death what what's on the page. So it adds this extra step because now I have to like completely memorize it without getting locked into something. Yeah. So I memorize the words and then the words are, are there and I can feel comfortable that they're going to be there. But, um, but I also have to have this distance so that I'm not locked into how I'm going to say something. So it's always feeling fresh. So no matter what happens in the audition, I can always, you know, have fluidity and stuff like that. And that's a real bummer. I just feel like it just sucks. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you remember your very first audition? Do you remember going out on, uh, for the first time? Um, my very first audition? Yeah. My very first audition, I, I, I don't know. I mean, because I, I did theater for so long sure. before I, okay. and then, you know, I did commercials for yeah. so long. And then, so it was like, my yeah, I mean, my first audition was was magical because it was 14 and I did a, a British farce in <laughs> my hometown and it, the part said Cockney. Yeah. Made. And I was like, oh, I watched Oliver. I can do Cockney, like, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Could you? Was... 
And was 14-year-old you? That, that was my first yeah. gig. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, great. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but then I, you know, obviously didn't do anything much. <laughs> I didn't, I, my first commercial, I think, was when I was in my mid-20s in Portland, Oregon. And then my first, and then when I was 29, almost 30, I moved to L.A. And then I did my first TV show. And that was Charmed, mm. I'm sure. Mm. Uh, no, Charmed. So I I did, uh, I played a detective who gets murdered. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> the review said I look like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there were reviews of Charmed. Or um, whatever. <laughs> oh, I guess, yeah, that would have Fan synopses yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about this a lot with my own writing. Like when I first started out, I could just write whatever because I didn't know what I didn't know. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. And now I'm like much more deliberative. Like it's harder for me. Like I realize that you you had your your vision issues with like doing the uh, the cold reads, but like have you found as you've developed as an actor, like you're more deliberative about these choices and things like that, or is there more? Is it more intuitive now that you've been doing it long enough? I think it's both end. Um, that's mm-hmm. a great question. I love that question because I do think that <laughs> I wish I got these questions in advance so I could really think about them and give you a really thoughtful answer. But um, going off my gut, I would say that uh, I I feel like, God, you know, the insecurity just doesn't really stop. You think like, yeah. oh, you hit sort of some level or plateau or that you just go, oh, okay. Yeah. And in some ways... I always feel like I have a very strong baseline, which I never felt like I had before. I I was just like everybody's about to find out that I'm that I'm just the worst actor in mm. the entire world, and it's going to be uncovered any second now. And is it right now? Oof, you know, I got woo, I got past security. You know, <laughs> but I still feel like. Well, maybe I'm limited. You know what I mean? That mm. thing. And so, what feels deliberate is I'm always trying to be better. I'm trying to always um, see if I can push. This is dumb, but you know, I can be an angry person in my life, no problem. But sometimes in, in my work, I feel like anger translates to shrill. Right. And um, how does, what's her name do it? Um, Fill in the blank, like uh, of your favorite actor. Uh, I'm thinking of specifically of What's her name? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, um, she always says Therese. Uh, and Kate. Kate Blanchett. Uh, Kate, yeah. Kate Blanchett. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is fun. Losing my mind. Um, but yeah, like Kate Blanchett, how does she play anger, but it's never sure? How does, how does um, Nicole Kidman do it, you know? Right. And uh, so those are the things that I, I feel like oh, this director is about to find out that I'm limited. <laughs> and other times, you know, I just go, screw it. And I I just go, I, I know what I'm doing, you know, right. and I, I do walk into every single job and feel like I don't feel anymore like they're about to find out that I am that I shouldn't be here, that, right. that I came in the wrong door and that I slipped past security. I don't feel that way anymore. But mm. I, I do worry about um, the more I get to work, the more I discover where my limitations sure. are popping up. Sure. I, I think about this too because I have that with my own with my writing, even with mm-hmm. like writing reviews and stuff. And I think about like my father was a farmer, mm-hmm. and did he like worry about what if the other farmers were going to realize that he didn't know what he was doing? <laughs> like, but it that's seem a great like. question. Do you think that he like when he went to? I, I'm totally writing the children's versions of your <laughs> father's life when he went to market with his vegetables. <laughs> um, but I mean, do you think farmers are sort of like? Pete's going to find out that I have been 
don't know. A crappy farmer this whole time. And- May, maybe like I, yeah, I, there was that element of competition. Like he mm-hmm. wanted to have the best harvest or mm-hmm. have like the best uh, crop of pigs. That's not, but like the best load of pigs that he could go sell or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, there was that like competition with, with other farmers. So maybe it's just like universal. Like we're yeah. all doing this and not talking about it. I say this to my husband all the time because he's in such a different sort of, you know, field than I am. And when he tells me this, you know, business stuff and company stuff, and I, I thought to myself, like, wow, mm. ego is everybody's biggest downfall, you know? Mm. It really is, like, no matter what your discipline is, you're always going to feel like you're getting short shrift or something like, or you're, or you're, you're not getting noticed for your um, participation or, I don't know. Yeah. I just feel like, I'm sure te- fourth grade teachers feel this, you know, yeah. like... Mm don't they even realize what I'm doing over, you know, yeah. <laughs> or, or they're about to find out, like these kids are about to call me on my bullshit and find yeah. out I don't know anything about American history. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you've mentioned a few times that you're, you're a writer. You did, uh, you developed, you created Benched. Um, you wrote a really wonderful episode of this season of Casual with, oh, with uh, Tommy. How does your writing feed your acting and, and vice versa? I was a little nervous about writing this season um, on this season because I am so uh, inside the character that I wondered if it would pull some of the uh, magic of the not knowing. You know how I said, like, every script sort of unfolds a new layer in Valerie. And I thought, if I'm ahead of it, because we wrote that, you know, before we started shooting. So I was like, if I'm ahead of it, am I going to be able to to play it out this season? And it, and the truth is, it doesn't it doesn't matter at all. There's such different hats that um, I'm either working as an actor or I'm working as a writer. And I can't do the... Here's the exception. Here's where I do the same at the same time mm. when I'm writing. Yeah. Um, when I'm acting, I can't be writing. But when I'm writing, I ca- I'm uh, acting all the time. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm in every single character. I'm playing all the characters. And it's so fun, especially because this was a, a series where we know everybody so well. It's season three. And... Usually when I'm writing, I'm creating I'm creating these people out of thin air. So this was so fun to be able to just, you know, it's like writing a spec script. Yeah. 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 You, mm. you know what they sound like. You know the rhythms. And so it, it was really fun. And then when, when Tommy and I were writing together, we would, we would get kind of hung up on something. And I'd be like, okay, just, just let's just start a scene, you know, and we could just talk about, let's talk about something mundane, but let's get to, here's what we need to, here's what we need to find out. We need to find out. You're trying to figure out who my my mother is, and da da da, da and or you're trying to figure out who my father is, and yeah. you're calling this person on the phone. You know, scenes that weren't necessarily in there. Um, I'm going to be them on the phone. You yeah. know, you be you, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I can find it hard to keep up with my reading. I love reading, but it's one of those things where when you're driving as much as I have to drive, you can't exactly read a book while you're doing it. One of the things I love about Audible is that it helps me keep up with that. It helps me keep up with my favorite authors from sci-fi to literary fiction to nonfiction in a way that is convenient for me and my schedule. I always try and take some time in the summer to read a big, engaging, fun, pulpy, beach read kind of novel. This summer for me, that novel has been Daryl Gregory's Spoonbenders. It's just a terrifically fun story of a family of psychics and con artists in the mid-90s at the rise of the internet and the United States government needs them to step back in the game and there are mob bosses and real estate scams 
systems and all sorts of crazy fun plotting. And it all comes together at the end, just the way you want it to. It's like if the Royal Tenenbaums had psychic powers. And I know that that's something you're into. I've just said that. I know you're into it. Now, if you're interested in trying out Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and also some original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash interesting. You brought this up, so I'll, I'll sort of dive into it. This season, Valerie uh, learned some things about herself that mm-hmm. sort of change her self-conception, new, new family relations without like spoiling the season for people who haven't seen it. That struck me as very similar to an actor working on a TV show and every season you learn some new things about the character. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel that way as well? Did you feel like sort of that broadening of who this person was uh, at the same time that they did, if that makes sense? Yeah, and it's so funny because I always felt like there was this um, really weird relationship between Valerie and her father, which mm. we understand. But Alex and his father had this sort of—I don't—I don't know if it was just a father-son thing, but I always felt like, especially in the way you know he passed in, in second season, that there was this weird chasm between the two of them, mm-hmm. and it gets so illuminated in season three and and it made me sort of go back and as the just like the characters also going back and being like oh and then I had so much sympathy for Valerie because she wasn't crazy (laughs) she felt like something was off and something was off and she wasn't crazy and I think that's so much to process for one person and I love how the show sort of dropped this bomb and then they kind of all walked away from it. It's like there's this ticking bomb in the middle of the living room and then they're just like, so who wants a sandwich? And and then they come back to it eventually because that's how casual it is. It's like you think, oh, that must be over, but it never really is. Stuff comes back to haunt them, right. you know, whether it's Emmy for Alex or whatever. But um and I think that's really realistic. I know for me, I have this sort of gauge in my head that goes, when something really awkward is happening, I just have this amazing sort of like garage door that just drops down and goes, that's not happening. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. That person isn't totally having a meltdown in the middle of this party. We'll just, does anybody want a cracker? You know, so I, I get that, you know, yeah. and it's just sort of like, get through it, get through it. And I think Valerie is sort of like, that's so much that I'm just going to, I'm just going to be over here mm-hmm. doing my thing, living my life. But really it's pushing through. I mean, yeah. it's just pushing through her, her consciousness and, and, and it's informing her actions and all those things, whether right. she wants to believe it or not. Right. So much of this season has been about parenthood, whether theoretical, like mm-hmm. in the case of Alex or uh, Valerie struggling both with her parentage and then being a parent. Mm-hmm. And, the show comes right out and asks her daughter, Laura, you know, mm. was your mother, is your mother a good mother? Do you think Valerie's is a good mom? <laughs> Again, I can't wait for you to see the whole season. <laughs> um, I assume the question will be answered definitively in the rest of the season. So here's my feeling about Valerie's parenting. Mm-hmm. If you ask me season one, if you asked me in the first three episodes of season one, I would say Valerie is an excellent parent. Mm-hmm. And I was confused that anybody would have thought differently mm-hmm. because I love my mother dearly. We don't, my mom's a product of the 50s. We don't have that kind of natural sort of 
bold, bald way of talking to each other. Right. I mean, we just don't. I right. mean, we do, in and just culturally, that's how we are. But, but not in the sense like we don't talk about the sex in my house. We don't, nothing like that. And um, and the fact that Valerie and and Tara Limbar, Laura, do is I found it really endearing. And yeah. and she put her daughter on birth control. Twelve, you know, she never said why specifically. I think it was just sort of like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, give my daughter all the tools she needs to like make the choices that she wants to in her life. I'm not gonna shame her. Right. I'm not gonna make her feel silly about it, you know. But as the the season has continued, you know, I start to go, okay, it's a little, it's a little weird. I get, I give it that, you know. Right. There's a little too much liberalness. I, I, I feel like it'd be cool if maybe she like found the reins and tightened them. But I think she did. I think in the first season, you know, she did She did keep trying to reconnect with her daughter. And then the second season, her daughter was going through something and she was going through something. And But they kept kind of finding their way back to each other. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. You know, I mean, it's, it's a weird time in Valerie's life. I'm going to give her a pass. Yeah. Season three, I, I just, I just, I, I think she got demoted from being a really great mom to being like a fair to she's going to cause some damage mom. Like a C plus. She got a C plus. <laughs> she got a C plus this season. Yeah. I have been watching the last couple episodes. I was a few behind. So I, I watched the last couple to catch up on this. It's a very small scale, very uh, real show about people who have primarily emotional problems. And I was watching it at the same time I was watching my Twitter feed sort of float by. Uh, Donald Trump is at the G20 mm-hmm. summit mm-hmm. and his foreign policy uh, seems to increasingly just be like, what happens if I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, like a constant series of A-B tests, which is one way to do it. And that dichotomy was so strange to me. And you, in this mm-hmm. season of Casual, you do talk a little bit about like the world at large. Like, mm-hmm. like Trump comes up a couple times, the election comes up. Mm-hmm. Have you felt that being in this show that's very like tiny as like at a time when we're all focused on these huge world events, like so many people are focused on what's happening in Washington or what's happening, uh, you know, overseas or something like that or North Korea, for instance. I think if you try to have a show that's set in 2017 in Los Angeles and you don't talk about the world at large, you're being so incredibly disingenuous that Mm -hmm. I feel like you lose the the authenticity and the realness and the honesty of the show mm-hmm. because I don't have a single conversation with a single person that doesn't eventually turn to world events mm-hmm. no matter how much a person follows. There's some people who really have their head in the sand I don't think are interested in those things or I think purposely just say, you know, it's too upsetting or whatever, you know, the world is too crazy right now. I don't want to think about it and I'm, you know, going to go back to watching Real Housewives or something. And, you know, I, they do them. But I, in Los Angeles, you know, I mean, we're, everybody's affected. But mm-hmm. I think that you, you can't be on any kind of electrical device and not experience what's happening and, or be in conversation with somebody. So to sort of, you know, extract it out of the characters and then, you know, I'm sure there's been some criticism that we're uh, espousing liberal propaganda because we have a character who's working for a nonprofit in a in a climate industry. I mean, a, a climate uh, awareness organization, right? And is working to clean up the environment locally in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. 
that's not propaganda. That is an actual job that people have and go to. It's not, we're not, it's not spreading an ideology. It's right. saying like, hey, there's these oil fields. People are getting sick around them. It's an actual issue. There's a lot of activists on the ground who are doing that. That's not, just because it's in your show, in a show doesn't mean that it's pushing an agenda. In fact, in the episode that that we wrote, uh, there one of the things that we originally had uh, Casey saying in her interview, we had to lose the radio um, studio to save money. Right. But uh, so we lost that location. But so some of the, some of the scenes got reworked. But um, but interestingly, there was in the conversation uh, with the in, being interviewed on the podcast, she does talk about all the other reasons for climate change. Like, mm-hmm. where's a lot of this carbon going? Some of us don't know. And it was sort of an interesting duality. Mm-hmm. But what she did come back to say is, here's what we do know. Yeah. <laughs> like, in 50 years, this was used to be in the script. Like, there's not going to be chocolate. Y- you can't argue that. But the the environment right now in the direction it's headed is not set up to sustain. It's not sustainable. Right. So... These are just things that people talk about. I mean, it's not strange to me because, I I, I mean, what's strange to me is how little it's sort of talked about because for me, this is 99% of what preoccupies my mind all the time. Right. But, um, you know, just world events, the Mm. news, everything. It's like the the world has kind of gone crazy in the last year. And (laughs) I don't know how you don't talk about it. Maybe that's just me. (laughs) This is definitely a show about people who have I guess you'd call them coastal elites if you were mm-hmm. uh, inclined to call people that. Yeah. I am not. But, yeah. but like, there are people who have a certain level of material comfort, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, sometimes seem really unaware mm-hmm. of that level of material comfort. And I guess what I'm asking is, do you think Casual, the show, mm-hmm. is aware of the dichotomy between these characters' comfort and their their problems? I guess it's sort of like that they don't realize there are others suffering far more than they are. Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. I think what's interesting to me is the people, I've never said this before, so I hope I don't get in trouble for this. No, it's not. But it seems interesting to me that the people who seem to get picked on the most in television for being a cultural, a coastal elite sure. are people who are at all upset about their own personal life. Yeah. In the sense that, like, there's a million comedies on TV where people are living, like, friends. You know, I mean, I'm sure they got a lot of criticism for that, too, because they were living in a big fancy apartment, going, <laughs> sitting in coffee houses all day. Um, okay, bad example. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of shows on TV where it's just people living their lives. But if it's a comedy, you know what I mean? We don't say, hey, don't you know there's other people suffering in the world? <laughs> <laughs> I remember I got a script, like, I don't know, five years ago or something yeah. like that. And 10 years ago, I, I forget. And it was some, like you know, TV sitcom. And one of the, I just threw the script across the broom when I was reading it. Cause I was like, come on. The line was something like, I'm going on a date. I'm going for Italian. Should I wear my hair up or down for Linguini? Mm-hmm. And it's like, should I wear my hair in a ponytail or down? Because I'm having Linguini was the line. And in my mind, I was like, we're in the middle of two wars right now. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck your ponytail. Fuck your linguine. Like, fuck this writer. Fuck every... Like, what is this shit? Um, but, but, 
<laughs> but for some reason with casual, because it's got, you know, I don't know, people who are seem genuinely like depressed and unhappy, mm-hmm. then you're like, fuck you guys. There's other people who are suffering way more than you. And it's just an interesting, I'm not, I don't have anything conclusive to say about it. It's just interesting to me that when somebody's unhappy, there's somebody's going to be like, screw you. There's somebody who's more unhappy than you. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's happy talking about mundane stupidness. Everybody's like, it's a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I there's just people who have a roof over their head and a paycheck who are really unhappy. I think were the world, you know, tuned right to the fork, it, we would all be so freaking grateful that we have all the things we have. We wouldn't even occur to us to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. But um, there is something called depression, and it's um, whether you have, I mean, look at Donald Trump. I don't know a more unhappy, empty, sort of sad man. Mm-hmm. I look at him, and I, if he wasn't so mean to people, I would feel bad for him right. um, because he, it looks so, to me, he looks very scared, and he looks very um, petrified, and his, that bottomlessness where he wants to be, accepted is so palpable, you right. know, and I would have compassion for it. Unfortunately, he's just he's just too mean. But that's a man who, you know, pees in a gold toilet every day. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why anybody's like, why are you so mad? You've got a gold plane. Um, so it's just there's a thing called depression. It's, it, you know, people have holes in their in their hearts. People have bottomless and they don't know how to fill it, um, and they can't, or it's just you. Maybe they're off chemically. I don't I have no idea. Yeah. But um, I do understand that you can simultaneously be so grateful for all the things that you get to have in this life, and feel really sad a lot, and feel um, empty inside. <laughs> well, it's also like we're really just starting to come to a place where we think about that taking care of your brain is as important as taking care of the rest of yourself. Like yeah. my wife's paternal grandfather, mm-hmm. you know, now if we if he lived today, we'd like mm-hmm. diagnose him as an alcoholic PTSD sufferer because he was in the war and saw some, you know, whatever. Yeah. But back then, you know, they didn't talk about it. Like it's, it's one of these things where we finally, I guess, I, I want to say the privilege of being able to talk about this stuff, but mm-hmm. there we do live in a time when, we can. And, we can. And like that's that's a new thing for a lot of people. And I think still threatening in some ways and for I, a weird reason. And I think we're not – I think when you're not trying to survive a lot of the time, you are left with your brain. Mm-hmm. I think when you're not out there, you know, chopping down a tree to make firewood, like if that's – when I did Outward Bound, I, I did it, you know, 10 days in backcountry and it was the most thrilling thing in the world. And I think quite honestly is because every single day was about survival. Mm. And it took me completely – it made me totally present. So. Yeah. I wasn't projecting forward into, you know, some sort of future and I wasn't like sort of reminiscing and like sentimentalizing or, you know, regretting some sort of past incident. I was constantly present and that is a very blissful state. And I think when you have your basic needs met, the next thing is what are you going to do with your brain, with this idle brain? And I think for some people that brain um, goes on to figure out like, combustion energy or whatever, you know, or for some people, it just sits there and spins and tells them a a narrative that is not pretty, you know, Mm. you're unlovable. It just says that to you over and over again. You're unlovable, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, everybody ticks weird, but 
Yeah, this this show definitely, I'm sure, gets like slotted into the bunch of you know white rich white people complaining. Um, I I think this show is so much more than that. I, I it feels like a it feels like an easy kind of like assessment, but at the same time. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do think that you could add in season four a character who just follows them around and holds up a sign that says, don't you know people are suffering? Like that, no. <laughs> and they'd be like, this guy's following me. Should I ask him how? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things, the show is a comedy, but it doesn't have a lot of like hard jokes. Like there are jokes in it, but, and a lot of that I realized as I was watching it is because the performance style, the scripts are written in a very conversational way. It's mm-hmm. very low key. And I'm wondering how you develop that kind of chemistry with your co-stars where it's just like, it really does feel like we're sort of gazing on these people just having a, an offhand conversation. Um, yeah, I think that the the tone of the show was set immediately with Jason Reitman. And um, anytime anything felt like it was, a joke was getting hit heart or anything like that, you know, he wanted us to pull off on the throttle. It's very clear. It was very clear. I mean, that didn't require much of a conversation. We all we all knew that's where mm-hmm. it was. Like, your character can be humorous and know they're sort of making a joke, you know, having folly. <laughs> but but we, there's no laugh. Like, these characters don't walk around thinking people are watching them laughing at them. So mm-hmm. they're not a, aware that what they're doing is funny. They're just, they are talking and just like you or I, I mean, and they laugh at each other, yeah. you know, they, if somebody says something that's genuinely like humorous to them, they're going to smile or laugh. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of times, you know, in sitcoms, people, somebody says the joke and the next, and the person just stares at them and continues with what they were saying because somehow they're supposed to ignore the fact that people are making jokes. So this is very real. This yeah. is like, we're supposed to give people that real experience. Um, and I think everybody who guest stars on this show, everybody's on the same page with that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think you don't get cast unless you sort of have an understanding that this is, this is where the show is, is going to live in you. And I uh, just to get back to one thing that I forgot, forgot to mention in the last question about, um, do you think these people are aware, like these coastal elites are the creators? Do they know what they're doing with mm-hmm. this show? I feel like I have to pay that off because I want to say that, yeah, they absolutely do. Right. Um, Xander Lehman uh, grew up here in, you know, Southern California, and mostly, I believe, maybe Northern California, actually, too. Anyway, um, yeah, maybe Northern California. Either way, um, he... He is very hyper aware of it. And that's the show he wanted specifically to make because he wanted, for him, he wanted to, he finds it, he's a little, I think he's so funny, but, uh, and so mature. I don't know how he has this sort of sensibility for how young he is, but he felt like there's the point of, like, what do you do with this group of people who seemingly have everything but are always unhappy. Yeah. And it's, these are not isolated people. These these are probably a lot of people he knows. Yeah. You know? Um, and whether you grow up in uh, Nebraska or Los Angeles, you know, I think it's just like suburban sort of culture has yeah. kind of, you know, I think it spreads anywhere. These people just happen to be in Los Angeles. Mm. But, um, you know, that's, he's writing what he knows. But, but I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up, I, you know, I've lived all over the place. I lived in Portland, Oregon. I've lived in Europe. I've lived, and same story, different different background. Sure. Are people suffering? A hundred percent. But there are some people in, like, like I said, who have their basic needs met for the most part. Mm-hmm. And 
then what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was my point, was that it was deliberate. What do you find uh, funniest about Valerie? What about her makes you laugh or smile or or say, yeah, I I think that's kind of crazy? I love... (laughs) I, I really do love her awkwardness. Mm. Um, I think this, she bumbles and fumbles friendships and she dates and all those things. And those things are all fun and sweet. But my, my favorite, favorite thing beyond those sort of external parts of her is her relationship with her brother. Mm. Is It's so sweet to me, especially the more... Like I said, I can't wait for you to see the whole season. But, you know, the second episode of season three where they kind of plomp around in that sort of link letter style, like walk through Burbank all night. And I just, I had such affection for my brother uh, when we were shooting that. And I just, it, it, it set up such a baseline. And I just, there's more and more clues of how much Valerie absolutely loves her brother. Right. And that it's just a very pure love even though they act out and do really crappy things all the time i just feel like that is saved for only him and only him mm-hmm. and um I, I i think that's just the most sweet sweet thing about valerie is that how much she wants to protect him So here's the thing. When I record, I think you're interesting. I often am running out of my house at the last minute because I'm I'm trying to fight the LA traffic. And that means I often need to grab breakfast or lunch or whenever we're recording. I need to grab that meal on the go. And that's where RX Bar comes in. RX Bar's core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds with no BS. And you can really taste those real food ingredients. You can taste the cacao, the real fruit, the spices, the sea salt. You know Whether you like sweet or savory chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. They come in 11 different delicious flavor varieties. They're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're dairy-free. There's no added sugar, no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. You've got the egg whites for protein, you've got the dates to bind, and the nuts for texture. And they're great for a number of occasions. Breakfast on the go, that's me. If you need a snack at the office, if you're getting on a plane and just need one in your bag, or if you're going on a hike or a bike ride, you can put it in your backpack. Or if you just need something after your workout, that's that's a great way to do it too. If you'd like to try RX Bar, you can get 25% off of your first order. You can visit rxbar.com slash interesting and enter the promo code interesting at checkout. That's once again rxbar.com slash interesting. Enter the promo code interesting at checkout for 25% off your first RX Bar order. The relationship with Alex really is structured, especially in season three. It struck me as it's structured like, uh, I'm I'm going to choose my words carefully, like a romantic comedy, mm-hmm. like where they keep coming together and keep breaking apart yeah. and keep coming together. Yeah, Obviously, absolutely. there's no element of romance to it, but there no. is this codependence there that's really interesting to, yeah. to see. It's really, it's really messed up. Um, what, what have you, as you've grown into this show and into the relationship with the character and with the actor, Tommy Dewey, like what have you guys learned about how those characters relate to each other? Well, I mean, I think we've always felt like, what do you do when your soulmate is is your brother mm. <laughs> <laughs> or your sister? It's not somebody you can ever be with sexually, and you certainly as hell wouldn't want to be. Mm. 
But um, but what does it mean for every relationship that comes, you know, after that? And how do you how do you have a romantic, a primary romantic partner? If your primary partner is your sibling. Yeah, I do know a lot of people who have that kind of dynamic um, with their, with a sibling, and I will say it's incredibly it it's it it's so fascinating how much it brings stress to their marriages because mm-hmm. they because the the spouse feels like. I'm, I don't feel like I'm your primary person. Yeah. And like, this is the family that you're choosing. So many of us come from a family that we didn't choose and we would, you know, mm-hmm. we're grateful and happy and it makes us who we are. But a lot of times you go out and you find your new tribes and everything like that. Yeah. It's so interesting to me when, when there's people who are just like, nope. I don't need to look any further. This is my this is my person, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's very sweet. I think it's really interesting, but I think it's like a fluke and a half when that happens. Yeah. Um, for for Valerie and Alex, they grew up, you know, it's funny you say coastal elite, but they grew up in like a, a basically a flop house, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, with these parents who were, you know, somewhat now would be considered, you know, neglectful and abusive. And I'm sure then too, but nobody cared so um they don't really have a a, um an emotional vocabulary for what intimacy is supposed to look like and what family is supposed to to be other than the fact that they just naturally decided okay this is an unsafe environment and we're gonna like take care of each other so you know (laughs) it's very sweet to me i i just think it's like when when two kids decide they're gonna take care of each other for the rest of their lives i think it's just a really sweet story yeah yeah, uh, we're we're coming into the end of the show, but I you've done so much over the years, and we didn't get to touch on nearly enough of it. But when people come up to you in the grocery store, if they do, I, people in LA are like a little more polite about this, I found, <laughs> than other places. But but when people come up to you, like what what do they recognize you for? What are, what are the things that people they have no idea really want to talk about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so funny. I was in uh, I was in Ojai last weekend, and this young woman. I mean, I. She seemed way too young for this to be a reference, but I was getting frozen yogurt. And she just said, like, were you on SNL? And I said, I was, but why would you know that? And she's like, I've, I, she knew. I mean, yeah. it was funny. And then, like, every once in a while, like, you know, I was just always amazed at who watches what and what they yeah. recognize me from, you know. But, yeah. um, but I would say it depends who it is, you know, if it's a, um, a, a gay man would maybe recognize me from either us, you know, like they like my bitchy blogger, this I'm going by demographic, of course, which is probably <laughs> highly offensive or transparent or something. But I, I don't know. Like, I just, I, 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 it seems to sort of, there's, I can't really even say other than that, there's not really any delineation, no, mm-hmm. no breakdown, but um, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I have the face that people go, People always ask me what they know me from. <laughs> Put it that way. What do I know you from? And I'm like, I don't know. What? Who yeah, care? What? What do you say to that? <laughs> I say, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> what do you watch? They yeah. say, hmm, I don't know. And I said, well, I'm on a show called Casual. And then they yeah. go, no. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. Well, we're going to, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests some of the same questions. So okay. I'm going to ask you those. Uh, and the first one is, um, what is the most recent pop culture thing, book, movie, album, TV show that you've consumed? And what did you think of it? 
The most recent one mm-hmm. is uh, Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely um, loved it as yeah. I sat shivering under my bed. Mm. Uh, I just thought it was amazing. I think uh, Elizabeth Moss is an incredible actress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always loved the movie, you know, from so long ago with uh, Natasha Richardson, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I I saw that movie so long ago. And I, I, I will honestly say that that movie has popped in my head at least, at least once a month since that time I saw that movie. Yeah. And it was really, um, it really rocked me, that movie. And that was, you know, years and years and years. It was like 20 years ago or something, mm-hmm. maybe more. And uh, so maybe 25 years ago. And so when this show came out, I thought they, they, they did a great, they handled it really beautifully. Um, I thought it was perfectly scary. And I think it's incredibly relevant and it's terrifying to me because just the the way that they're marrying the um, sort of the flashbacks of, of of this pre-existing time where their you know world looked like ours, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, like women are told how to dress and they can't come to work anymore, and they this and, and you know, and their their liberties are just being pulled away and pulled away and pulled away and normalized and normalized and normalized, and I see that happening right now, you know with things that are just getting normalized and it makes me very, feels very unsettling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to totally shift gears. I know that's so depressing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You seem like you might have a good story. So I'm going to ask you this one. What is a, a story of a bad, like outing? Like you went, took some friends to a concert and they just hated it or a bad movie date, <laughs> something where you went out with some people and it just completely fell apart. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I don't, I, God, I'm trying to think of something sort of recent. I mean, you know, these things probably happen constantly. Um, my, I, I always had a joke with my friend Laura Kerrigan in college because we decided we were going to just pay our rent um, by having a party and charging people per cup, you yeah. know. And the way college works, is, as you may or may not remember, is that you whisper the word party and before you know it, like your your entire apartment yeah. or whatever is taken over and there's, yeah, it's like packed. So mm-hmm. we were like, we're going to do this. We'll have a, one party a month. We'll charge per cup, and but we're not, we don't tell anybody because <laughs> we know what's going to happen. Like we got to keep it, you know. Yeah. So we get the kegs and everything and we're standing in the, store and we're like should we buy cups should we get 50 cups is 50 cups good like 50 cups is good and then we're like should we get we should probably get 80 cups this is going to be (laughs) and for years and years we always have this joke whenever anything doesn't work out we're like good thing we bought 80 cups because we were so disciplined about not telling anybody about our party (laughs) (laughs) nobody came to our party (laughs) We had two. We're like sitting there with all these kegs. <laughs> Nobody's there. Uh, so that's great. And every time I see her, whenever we see a movie that it's you know bad or mm-hmm. anything like that, we're always like, "Well, good thing we bought eighty cups." <laughs> <laughs> Finally, who's the actor you've learned the most from that you've never met? These are such good questions. Like I said, this is going to make me so crazy because I'm going to drive home in the car and be like, "Ah, oh, <laughs> this is what I should have said." The actor that I've learned the most from. I'm going to say every predecessor female comic on Saturday Night Live. Mm. And yeah, I'm not going to say Julia Louis-Dreyfus because I've met her, but like, uh, but I've learned so much from her. But, yeah. you know, of course, 
Carol Burnett and, you know, Lucille Ball. But, but I mean, I, I feel like my formative years that um, those were, the, the way women were really so funny and the characters they played was constantly giving me a permission slip to mess around and yeah. to stretch myself. Yeah. And to um, try different cadences with my voice and all those things. And I think, you know, maybe it's mimicry or whatever it is, but eventually I found my own voice by learning how they found theirs, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Casuals on Hulu. You can watch almost all three seasons at this point. The third season finale goes up very soon. Uh, thank you so much, Michaela, for thank dropping you. by. Thank yeah. you so much. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerp. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Fox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. This week's episode is recorded at the podcast studio at the Village Workspaces in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard, and our recording engineer is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate review and subscribe i think you're interesting on any podcast platform you use be that apple podcasts or stitcher or some other one i've never even heard of we'll be back next week with some other person from the world of arts and entertainment someone who i think is interesting until then it's a good thing you have 80 cups is that my stomach growling or yours Uh, who knows mine okay